My purpose in writing is to encourage you and assure you that what you are experiencing is truly part of God's grace for you. Stand firm in that grace. Greet each other with a kiss of love. Peace be with all of you who are in Christ. How you feeling today? Feels like fall today, doesn't it? It's awesome. I like fall. Um, yeah, I should probably preach from the Bible. You know what I want to do though? I, before I do that, I want to thank you guys. Uh, we are well represented in the North Bay, and we are helping people uh, dig out from the fire and try to find what other whatever possessions are left. In most cases. Um, they're coming back to either smoke damage or to absolutely nothing. And we have identified a thousand families now that uh, did not, for whatever reason, have fire insurance. So try and imagine that. Uh, so thank you so much. Your generosity has been overwhelming. Keep it up. You can give online or you can just give to one of the pastors and, uh, or somebody here. Like don't just hand your money to somebody and just go. I don't know. But anyway, keep giving, and uh, there's ways for you to go up and help as well if you want to do that. Uh, this is going to be a long-term project. Um, we actually are involved in Houston as well, and we were really setting up some things in Houston when the fire hit, and we've made kind of an executive decision that there's a lot of Christians in Houston and not so many in the Bay Area, and so we're, we're putting most of our efforts now um, towards uh, fire relief and going up and saying, uh, I don't know you, but you're part of my Bay Area, and you also are a fellow American, and I'm a Christian, so this is what we do. And uh, so we're partnered with some churches up there. Uh, some of the churches we partnered with, the church actually burned down, and uh, we we're trying to work with some pastors, but we had to get them. We have we're having to get them uh, on solid ground too, because their house burned down. And uh, so it's just crazy. One church uh, we've identified forty families lost their homes in the one small, it's not that big of a church. So anyway, thanks for your help. Keep helping. All right, let's get our Bibles open. First Peter chapter 2, verse 11. We are, uh, I hope you're enjoying this. I'm enjoying uh, walking through this letter. Uh, we have, you know, in, day, in, in, in years gone by, we would pick a book of the Bible and it would take us a year or two to get through it. And uh, and that was our thing back then, and we even kind of bragged about it and all that. Uh, we have picked up the pace these days, I think you might have noticed. So you will want to uh, read the verses that we don't take time to cover in a book like this, because even in a series this long, we do have to skip some stuff. And we, we try to, we pray and we say, Lord, what does Cornerstone uh, most need to hear? But we've slowed down a bit in chapter two, uh, and we will be diving into chapter three even today and moving forward. But... Uh, First uh, Peter 2.11 is where we start. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Foreigners and exiles, what's the deal? You know, these people, aren't they locals? And it's like, yeah, you're locals, but because of what's happening in your life through Jesus Christ, you've joined a new kingdom, the kingdom of God, and the more you hang out with Jesus, the more it makes you different, and at times you're gonna feel like, like you're, you're a foreigner now, maybe even in the town you grew up in, because 
Jesus has, has, is preparing you not only for heaven, but helping you bring heaven to earth. Uh, verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. All right, so whenever I study a book of the Bible, I do my best to immerse myself in what life was like back then. It's a long time ago that they're writing these texts. And if we can develop a rudimentary knowledge of how their life was different and same, and what, then we can maybe get a feeling for what these words meant to them compared to what these words mean to us. So the entire New Testament is written in the second half of the first century AD. James, starts, uh, James publishes, finishes his book about 50 AD, and these dates are estimates, off, give or take a year or two. So James is about 50 uh, AD, and John writes the final letter of the New Testament, 95 AD. So there's this 45-year period where the whole New Testament is written. And so we think about their lives, and uh, in, 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 in some ways, life was simpler back then. Uh, in, other, in other ways, it was much more complicated and challenging than it is for us. Uh, and, and so for the New Testament readers, they're dealing with the Roman Empire. They're part of the Roman Empire, and they're, they're dealing with Rome, and they're also dealing with Judaism. The first Christians were all Jewish. And, uh, and then, but by the time Peter writes this book, there are more Christians that are not Jewish than Jewish. So the church has changed drastically, uh, both with ethnic and religious backgrounds, in just uh, 40 years. So, uh, so, so let's talk about the Roman authorities. At first, the Roman authorities viewed the Christians as, you know, no big deal. There's, there's just an argument in Judaism. Let's let them solve it. And even we get a hint of this with Pontius Pilate saying, this is your problem, this is a Jewish problem. If you don't like this guy, deal with him. And they're like, oh no, it's, it's your problem. You know, you need to crucify him. And so he basically, as politicians do, he kind of you know, tested the wind and, and did what he felt would be the best uh, for his career. Um, and, but, but, but Rome I hardly took notice of the crucifixion of Christ, if at all. But here we are now 30 years later and Peter is writing this letter and Rome has now taken notice because there are Christians everywhere. I mean, I'm sure that the authorities thought, you know, Jesus is causing problems, we'll execute him and that'll be the end of it. But that's absolutely not what happened. And all over the empire now, in every stratum of society, there are believers in Christ, all the way from uh, slaves, uh, all the way to members of the emperor's household that are followers of Jesus Christ. And this is causing Rome now to ask, who are these Christians and what should we do about them? If anything, are they a problem? And should we be concerned about them? And one thing, one thing is clear from reading what Roman history we have about the Christians, they did not understand the Christians at all. Uh, and what people don't understand, they demonize and what we demonize, we tend to attack. And so Rome has started to go on the attack against Christians. It's, it's still relatively mild, but definitely it is happening. Uh, so how did Rome view the Christians? Well, it's, it's crazy because when, you, when I'm going to tell you how Rome viewed the Christians, you're going to say, what? First of all, they viewed the Christians as atheists. So these are atheists, and we, we don't want atheists in our midst. Uh, atheists, yeah, because they were rejecting all the Roman gods in favor of worshiping this dead Jewish rabbi. And that didn't make any sense at all to Rome. You got all these amazing gods all around you, these beautiful temples. Why don't you participate in society? And their lack of participation in society meant that the Christians were, were not purchasing any of the 
idols or the accoutrements of idolatry that were in every household. And this apparently in, in cities like Ephesus was actually affecting the economy. There were so many Christians that it was affecting the economy. And so Christianity now is apparently bad for local business. To add to that, emperor worship. Emperor worship was on the rise. And that's when you, you take a pinch of incense and you put it in a bowl and there's a statue to Caesar and you started now, instead of saying, he's our emperor, you start saying, he's our God, he's our Lord. And Christians were not apt to do that. So they would declare publicly, Jesus is Lord. And then that pitted Jesus against the emperor and that was not, uh, uh, you know, that was just downright unpatriotic. And if you want to paint somebody as evil and subversive, just paint them as unpatriotic, even in our culture. And then you, you got them, or you think you do, anyway. And then here's the craziest one. I saved it for last. In some locations, the Jesus people were called cannibals. They were being, it was, they were cannibals. They were eating flesh and drinking blood in these private rituals called the Lord's Supper. Exactly, and, uh, but this was the rumor, and no one wanted cannibals in their midst. So the, by the time uh, Peter wrote this letter, some of the Christ followers were being ostracized from their home communities, and uh, local Roman citizens were maligning the Christians, and this will increase. So Peter writes the churches a letter, encouraging them, coaching them, saying, hey, listen, we're having an effect uh, and so he's helping them shape uh, an effective response to these attacks, as we just read in verses 11 and 12. But then also, if you skip to, uh, well, if you look, if you, you, we, won't, we won't go here, but he's going to talk all the way through to, he's going to say, hey, slaves, here's how you should act. Hey, wives, here's how you should act. Hey, subjects of Caesar, here's how you should act. So much of this actually is different in New Testament that we, we aren't able to glean a whole lot out of this part of it. But anyway, it's, it's basically whatever lot you are in society, whatever, uh, then, you know, bloom where you planted for Jesus is, is what this passage is saying. Then in chapter 3, verse 8, Peter says, finally, all of you, everybody, be like-minded. And what does that mean, be like-minded? Does that mean we all think alike, we all vote alike, we all dress alike? No, absolutely the opposite. We're supposed to be different members of one body. But like-minded means we have the mind of Christ. Come together around the commonality of Jesus Christ. Uh, no matter who you voted for, no matter how you feel about what's going on around us, when we come together, come together around Jesus Christ. Uh, and then he says, be sympathetic uh, and, and love one another and be compassionate and be humble. And don't be the person that repays evil with evil or insult with insult. Except on Facebook, of course, that's still allowed. Uh, on the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called. To this were you called. By who? By who? Jesus, God, or love? Come on. By who? By Jesus, who said, turn something. Turn the other. Yeah, okay, there it is. Uh, bless those who curse you, Jesus said. Uh, and we still haven't gotten this down. We still haven't completely figured this out. Uh, and, and, and the Bible, the New Testament is consistent on this one. Bless those who, who curse you. And he says, you know, if you're going to love life, you're going to live this way. Look at verse 13. Who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what's right, you're blessed. Don't fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Okay, so let's stop there. 
Live a good life, he says. Live a Christ-centered life, and then just accept the consequences of that. And since you're being observed and evaluated, leverage that. And some of your staunchest critics later will defend you, not necessarily for what you believe, but for how you act. All right, so um, how do we take this into the, into, into the 21st century? How do we live Christ in our local communities in such a way that we're having an effect, we're getting a reaction, both positive and negative? I still think it's possible in our churches that we haven't grasped the following truth, that Jesus did not call us to go out there and be liked by everyone. Jesus didn't say, go out there and wherever you go, fit in and don't create any problems for people. That's not what he did, and that's not what he expects us to do. What did he say? Go out there and make something. There was a product. There was something he wanted us to create. What was that? Go out there and make disciples. Make people who are disciples. Of, 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 of what? Of religion? Of niceness? No, disciples of a person, Jesus. So let's just talk, let's think about us. Many of us have lived in this community or the Tri-Valley uh, for a very long time, or a long time. Uh, how many of you have lived in the Tri-Valley for a long time? All right, so what does a long time mean? Uh, uh, I, I'd like, for, I'd like to, for you to answer out loud the following two questions. You ready to answer out loud? Yeah. All right, you seem to be. All right, first of all, loud. What city do you live in? All right, good. How long have you lived here? Okay. okay. So if you said something that was double digits, I've lived here 13 years, I've lived here 47 years, you are exactly who Peter is preaching to. He's saying you're the perfect missionary for this city, not because you're a perfect Christian, but because you Dublinians speak Dublin. You liver morons? You Pleasantonians, you know what tone is pleasant. I just made that up right on the spot. You are welcome. No, you are welcome. You probably don't even know how much you know about the language and the nuances of your microclimate. You also know what wouldn't work for the gospel in your area. You've even seen some things where you go, oh, they have no idea how to reach people like us. Now, the early Christians got that. And so they figured out how to stand out as being different, but different in a way that looked like Jesus. Therefore, they weren't cannibals, they weren't atheists, they weren't unpatriotic, but they were different. One of the early church fathers named Tertullian wrote about the early fathers, contrasting them to their neighbors. He writes, the world, and this is 200 AD, he's writing from North Africa. He says, the world gleefully attends the bloody gladiatorial spectacles, not the Christians. They, they never take joy in this kind of thing. In other religions, slaves are forbidden to attend the religious rituals with their masters. 
In the church, it's the opposite. They're sitting side by side. Some of the slaves are actually discipling their masters. Tertullian writes, when a plague hit, people abandoned even their own parents and left them to die. It was the Christians who came in with hospice and hospitality. Uh, if a Roman baby is born, Tertullian writes, and it has any deformity at all, the baby is stripped and left out to exposed to the elements to either starve to death or to be attacked by the dogs that cleaned up the streets every night. The Christians would roam the city streets listening for a baby's cry and take the babies in as their own and raise them in the Christian family. It was these surprising Christian behaviors, these inconveniencing Christian behaviors that attracted their neighbors to consider Christian doctrine. It was not as much the Christians on the street preaching doctrine that attracted people. It was the Christians on the street living out the ethos of Jesus, a very different God in a very different religion, and people said, you know what? Society has become so violent, but these people are not violent. Society has become so selfish, but these people are not selfish. Society has become so hedonistic and hypocritical. These people are real. I'd, I'd like to know what is making them that way. And Peter writes and he says, listen, I know you're facing some opposition now, but keep it up. You're having an impact. Your goodness is what is so attractional. Your love, your compassion, your humility mixed with your morality is what people have been wanting for themselves. Uh, the rumor spread about you said you were bad for a community, but people are finding that not to be true. Now, we bring that right into the 21st century easily because we know some of the rumors out there about us. I mean, come on, Cornerstone's a mega church. We've called ourselves evangelical in the past. America is taking sides on this. So people in the Bay Area look at us and they go, yeah, we know, we know who you voted for, we know who you are, we know how phobic you are, we know how hateful you are, we know how non-inclusive you are, we know how judgmental you are, we know how opinionated you are, you're against all these things, you're not for anything. And it's like, well, okay, I guess you don't know us. Uh, thanks for the labels and all that, I appreciate it. Uh, I'm not like that at all. And I know lots of you guys, and you're not like that either, but how do you change that perception? Well, I think it comes from actions instead of words. What would Peter say? I think Peter would say, surprise them with your actions. Surprise them. Figure out how to present the real Jesus. Not compromising who he is and what he stands for, but do it in ways that are unpredictable. There's a saying that goes, when predictability is high, impact is low. So if people say, well, we know who you are, and look, you're doing exactly what we predicted you would do, then your impact for the gospel is gonna be much less. But if you're surprising people, when you're surprising them, it's when our neighbors say, wait, 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 I thought you were like this, but you so obviously are like this, and then possibly they will consider our Jesus, which is our goal all along. And maybe that describes you. Maybe you joined us this week, not because you're following after Jesus, because, but someone you know and have come to really respect 
goes to this church and is following after Jesus. And you like what you see in them, so now you're checking out everything else about us. You know, I bet the city of Hayward likes what they see in our Cornerstone men. Um, I was impressed recently by these guys at, 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 in, uh, in our, on our Cornerstone campus. Uh, they've adopted Park Elementary School. And Park Elementary School is at one of our under-resourced uh, schools in Hayward. And they're, they're struggling to make ends meet. So a lot of stuff doesn't get done. And a lot of stuff at Park Elementary was starting to get run down. There was just not money or manpower to do what they needed to do. Uh, the, the manpower at Park Elementary would be the parents. And a lot of the parents are single parents or they're working two jobs. And they don't have a lot of time to come over and spruce up the school. So our men just said, we'll do that. So they adopted this one school. They've been at it for about a year and a half. And they've done some things like they built a shed. They paid for, they used actually their own money to build some picnic tables. Because you notice everyone was just sitting on the ground eating their lunch. Or, or, and it was just like kind of like didn't feel human enough to our men. And so they just, they came in and said, we're going to create an area, a lunch area, eating area, whatever. They did some other stuff including after-school programs and so forth and so on, but it really went to the next level because a few months ago, the school won a prize from a, uh, a constructor of playground material. And the idea was, we'll donate all the materials, but you have to put the manpower together, and until you have the manpower, you don't get the materials. But once you can show us that you could put this thing together on your property, you can have this as a donation uh, from our company. Well, word got out, and our guys joined about 100 other people and started building this playground for these kids. And, uh, and it went crazy. People started joining us. They would put on a T-shirt, and uh, some of the parents came out. Some of the teachers came out. We even had uniformed policemen came out in uniform on purpose in order to say, uh, we're in, and, and, and we want the children to see us doing this. So that they'll, the, the, our relationship with your kids will end up being a very, very positive thing. So good job, Hayward men. Not only did you do it, you did it linking arms with the community. So now the mayor of Hayward knows Pastor Paul Lux and knows the men and says, hey, what else can we do together? And the principal of that school has said, hey, Cornerstone, come in, help us with after-school programs, come in, because now they view us as someone with an agenda, yes, but they thought our agenda was to try to save everybody and try to convince everybody not to be something, and instead of our agenda was for them, and it was for what Jesus would do for this school. And it's just been the coolest thing. And I think that when we serve our local communities like this, we surprise people. We evoke curiosity about the Christian message. We're not inviting you to come into our church as much as we're asking you if our church could be invited onto your property to serve and to help uh, you. That's our mission. Draw attention to Jesus and then represent him well and then prepare for some great local conversations, which is what I want uh, us to shift to now because Peter's gonna say this. Look at verse 15 of chapter three. Three fifteen. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect keeping a clear conscience. Always be ready, he says, at any moment for a conversation about Jesus to break out. 
And not a conversation that you manipulated in any way, but a conversation was the result of continuous and surprising Christ-like behavior. This is a natural thing for people to do. For us, for us to do so many things representing Christ well that someone would finally say, all right, I need to talk more about this because I like you. I like who you are. I like your kids. I think you're, I, I've, I've seen you in some ups and downs and your life is not obviously the easiest life in the world and yet you have a joy that I don't have. You, and you also are about others, which I really think is cool. And next thing you know, you're having a Jesus conversation that very often is brought up by the other person. If that's happening to you, you are doing it right. Good job. Now, if that's not happening to you, I don't wanna shame you. Uh, it could be that you're introverted. It could be that you don't like to bother people with your religious beliefs. It could be for a lot of really normal reasons. But I would say that this, if no one is asking you about your Jesus, they may not know you have Jesus. They may not know that he is your Jesus. So figure out based on your personality type and your situation, how would I live out Jesus more publicly? So, to, to, so that these conversations would happen. Okay, so let's talk about these conversations because he says, always be ready for these conversations. So that means prepare yourself for these conversations, but how in the world would you prepare for a conversation like this? Because you, it can be difficult. You can, under, you can overdo it or you can underprepare. Like if you underprepare for these conversations, then you're just not ready when they happen and they kind of come and go and they just pass by like a slow moving train and you don't jump on because you're like, oh wow, there it was. Okay, let me think. And, next, and, then the, and then the train leaves the station. But if you over-prepare, you can be really annoying with your little TED Talk for Jesus. Have you ever tried one of those? Oh, man. We were taught what was called witnessing in the, back in the day. And oh, I don't know how many people we went out and We would go to people's houses and knock on their door. And there's other religions that do that. And I guess it's successful, but it's like, why are we copying that? All right, so I'm not an expert, but I will tell you, here's how I have learned to prepare for these conversations. And it's, trust me, it's by trial and error. I learned most of what I learned by making big mistakes at other people's expense. That'll be on my tombstone. <laughs> It'll be a big question mark. How did he get as far as he did? He made so many mistakes. All right, preparing to explain our hope in Jesus. I would just say, and this list just came out of my head, so it's not complete. Do whatever you want with it. Here's how to prepare. <laughs> or e-pairing. No, it's, it's commerce. It's on the internet. You e-pair now. You don't prepare. It's a new thing. All right. E-pairing to explain our joke in Jesus. First of all, know Jesus. He even says that. Always, you know, revere Jesus in your heart. You can't share who you don't know, and so I would just say spend more time with Jesus and you'll more naturally talk about him and not about these principles of Christianity. You know, in the old days, we were taught, you know, share kind of the principles of Christianity, kind of almost like this is who we are and why we're different and these are our rules, and it kind of just sounded like a list of principles, but you know, um, now we call those life hacks and everybody's doing that. I mean, there's lots of really good blogs and websites and books. I mean, you can go to any airport bookstore and, and, and buy a book, and before you land in the next city, you can have two or three new life hacks that are actually really good stuff. 
So the, the Christians, I would say we probably would want to take a different approach than that. Instead of preaching our gospel as if it's a set of principles, why don't we preach our gospel as if it's a person to know, uh, the Son of God? Because Jesus is not a list of behaviors. Uh, he's a God that I trust. Uh, he's real, he's creative, he's relational, he's loving, he's wise, he's never changing. He knows me, and yet he likes me anyway, and he wants to spend time with me. So I would say as I prepare to share Jesus, I would just prepare with Jesus and hang out with him and say, Jesus, how in the world did you save the world, and how in the world am I going to be a part of that? And then he starts saying, well, just, just talk about um, talk about me because I am the gospel. And so I think if we got this in our head, our good news is not a, a thing, it's a person. Can we say that? Our good news is a person. A person. And it's a, a really refreshing person, our Jesus. He's the person that stood in an exhausting environment and said, hey, if anybody's tired or thirsty, get over here. I gotcha. And that is a God that'd be very appealing to the Bay Area. What is lacking in the Bay Area? Well, we're all moving pretty fast, and we're going after what we crave, and we're going after what we, uh, this, this success, and, we're, and, and, and lots of us are tired. And if Jesus were to come and just say, hey, come to me, and I will give you rest. And if we can reveal a Jesus that has people taking Sabbath and resting as part of their religion that's an appealing uh, religion. And then, if we, can, if we can show them a Jesus who went after people's pain and resolved the pain. And it's so many of Jesus' miracles revolve around human pain. Not only physical pain, but the pain of isolation. As he reached out to people who were isolated because of contagious disease. And so, if we go after pain, we're going to go after the Bay Area. Because, I mean, why are people addicted to painkillers? Because at one point, they were in severe pain. That's how I got addicted to painkillers. Now the pain is the painkiller itself. So if we can say, yeah, we've got a crisis here, but it's, it's not a crisis of substance. It's a crisis of pain. And then Jesus goes after the pain. I don't know a single alcoholic that in their fifth grade essay of who I'm going to be as an adult said, I'm going to be an alcoholic. They became an alcoholic most likely because of what? Pain. So that Jesus goes after the pain, and I would say our greatest testimony is if we find people who are in pain that also happen to live in a $3 million house, because pain is no respecter of, per, of economy. And if we go after and we say, oh my goodness, uh, and then you go, wait, that's my friend. And so instead of preaching a religion to them, we, we give them a, a cosmic painkiller God who will relieve their pain in a healthy way. But see, before that has to happen, he has to work on our pain. And that means that he, he has to come after our addictions because every one of our addictions, whether it's shopping or eating or whatever, comes after. We're, we're looking for something in the wrong place, probably to try to ease a feeling that we have. And if we can lean into this, then we're gonna find this all over the Bible, how God's been doing this since day one. All right, so the first thing we do as we e-pair is what? What? How do they do that? You guys are amazing. What just happened? That is not a computer that did that. That's a human being. We still need human beings, people. 
Number one, know Jesus. Number two, memorize some verses. Now, in the old days, they had us memorizing verses like the Roman road, and you, you were preparing your TED Talk. Uh, don't do that. Just don't do it. No one's asking you, how can I then be saved? I mean, people don't talk like that anymore. But, mem- but that doesn't mean don't memorize verses. Just memorize the verses that are the most meaningful to you. And you know what? You don't even have to memorize them word for word. You can just say, there's this scripture in whatever, and then make that your verse. And don't, don't use everyone else's favorite verse as your verse. And then when people, they say, hey, I want to talk. You go, well, we have this book, and I have a couple favorite verses out of this book that I actually love them so much I learned them. You want to hear them? And who knows? They might say, yeah. And then you say, you know, here's my verse. And then you say, and then you explain why that verse is so powerful to you. So number two, memorize some verses as you prepare to share. And then as you share, number three, share personal experiences. People are going to want to know what you've discovered about God. And they're probably then, probably, probably, then going to want to tell you what they have discovered about God as well. So now prepare for a conversation because number four, conversations are better than speeches. Now that, that's me talking to me because I make speeches for a living and the danger in my, my speeches is that number one, they're too long and number two, at the end of the speech, I think, oh, we're done. But the reality is a good sermon launches a great conversation. And that's what we're supposed to be doing up here is launching, stimulating thought and launching conversations. Uh, Don't ever make a speech when a conversation would be better. Even if someone gives you the floor, so to speak, like a group of people say, well, you're a Christian. What do Christians think about this? Be careful right then because it's not time for you to pull out your three by five cards and go, well, I'm glad you asked. And you stand up and you get your pointer out and you know, you're doing the thing. No, you may want to in that moment even not answer the question with anything except another question. That's what Jesus did. Read the red letters. Somebody asked him a question, he asked them a question back. Now why does he do that? Is it because Jesus doesn't know the answer? The son of God, I don't know. Jeez, wow. Stumped me. No, what's he doing there? He's drawing the person out for a conversation. He's asking a question to, in order for them to figure themselves out and for them to be able to say, why, why are you asking that question? And sometimes the next question is more revealing of who the person is. So he's drawing them out instead of drowning them out. And I believe there's a lot of spiritual hunger out there right among the people that we're hanging out with at work uh, but we have to know what the hunger is and not assume that we bring our lunch bag from church and go, anybody hungry? I made this. And instead we go, hey, what's, what are you hungry for? What are you thirsty for? Well, let's talk about that. If we learn to ask great questions, we will have great conversations. If we don't ask questions, we will answer questions that no one is asking. And that's what the church has been doing for centuries. And if we don't stop it, we're gonna become obsolete. All right. So as you're talking to the person, then take the pressure off yourself by doing this. Picture the next conversation you're going to have with that person about Jesus. Picture it while you're having this conversation and wrap up the conversation before the person tries to wrap up the conversation. Before they start going, oh, well, hmm, hey, oh, hey, you know, I got, uh, you, you, you go, hey, listen, let's talk again sometime. This has really been cool. I love how we talked about is Jesus, like, who is he really? Is he son of God? Is he God? You know, is he, and then, and you ask me, you know, why do I serve him? I have to, I have to kind of think about that a little bit. Would you like to get together again? 
And that is such more a human thing to do, to get together again and have pieces of conversations that are also tied into other conversations. Have you noticed how Americans are? When we talk about something that's like kind of intense, we like to also talk about other stuff that's not kind of intense. And we don't like to go to level five and stay there for a very long time with someone we're just getting to know. And so what we do then in that conversation, we go, hey, that's really great. And, and, and man, we, you wanna, because I, I, I can get a hockey tickets. You were talking about hockey, you wanna, uh, and next thing you know, you've made a friend instead of trying to get a convert. And that's a very beautiful thing. Jesus went around making friends by being Jesus. And that's what we do as well. Now, as we're talking also, this is extremely important, choose the best tone. If you look again at verse 15, what, what are the last, the last phrase of verse 15? He talks about say what you're gonna say, but say it with something. Gentleness and respect. So choose the best tone for the conversation. And this will be really refreshing because everybody out there is mad and talk, trying to overtalk each other and whatever. You're gonna surprise people uh, with, this, with a peaceful and intelligent, winsome tone. It's really disarming these days when we talk like that. Also, if you're having a conversation with someone about God, get off of anything digital to have that conversation. That conversation needs to be voice to voice because you cannot hear tone on text, email, or Facebook. So get off of anything in print. And even though it's easier to do this, actually get together with people. Remember, God is the example in this. He sent a book, and people read the book and didn't get it. So what did he have to do? He had to come and have conversations with people. All right. And even as he left, he said, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit because I want to keep talking to you guys. And so that's why it's so important with us that we don't get sucked into the digital age and think that Facebook conversations accomplish anything at all or that text conversations are understood because what did they teach you in rudimentary communication class? 90% now they're saying of all communication is what? Tone and body language. How are people gonna see your tone and body language if you're sitting at your computer rewriting something and rewriting it and going, sin! <laughs> what the heck is that? Stop it. All right. Choose the best tone. Number eight, having said that about your tone, own your beliefs. If you believe something and you say it nicely, this is America. This is America. We're not living in Saudi Arabia. So own your beliefs without apology. Just say them with the right tone. People respect other people who know who they are and what they believe, even if they disagree with you. And that's still true in the Bay Area. Now, there, there will be people that will try to drown you out because they disagree with you, but those people are jerks, and they need Jesus, and they're absolutely in the minority. Most people will listen to a reasoned person who also lets them talk in a conversation. So, so own your own beliefs without apology, but at the same time, what's the next one? Own your own doubts, honestly. If you want to be respected, don't be a know-it-all Christian that has the Bible answer for every question that somebody asks. As a matter of fact, people can get you in that rut, and they'll say, well, I would serve your Jesus if you would answer the following three questions. Don't get sucked in. 
You're not the Bible answer man, and those questions are always really hard to answer, and they're probably your questions too. Instead, get on the other side of the table with the person and go, I know, exactly, Noah's Ark? I don't know, that's kind of weird. <laughs> and then just get back to talking about Jesus. Jesus didn't say, go out there and convince everybody that evolution is a crock and God created the earth in seven days. He didn't say that. He said, go out there and make disciples of Jesus Christ. That's what we're supposed to be doing. And the last one then is take it easy. That goes with number seven as well. But I would say take it easy. Don't force a conversation. Don't manipulate a conversation. If you're in a conversation, don't Jesus juke people. Do you know what a juke is? What's a juke? Act it out. No, it's not a dance move. Even though they call it a jukebox, think about it. What's a juke? A juke is when you have a football or a rugby ball or a soccer ball and the defender thinks you're going this way and you've been going this way and all of a sudden what do you do? You juke. And you're, well, Christians have even been taught to Jesus juke people in conversations. Like, you know, I don't, I mean, think of a Jesus juke kind of conversation. You know what? I'll tell you one that's not funny because I actually did this, and this is one, I mean, I learned something at this, at this guy's expense. All right, so there was a guy, and his wife had already told me, if you ever get a chance to spend time with my husband, I would love it if you would talk to him more about Jesus Christ, because I've tried, and it's not working, whatever. So I, I accepted that pressure onto myself, which I should have never done, okay? And have you ever had, like, an underlying pressure that causes you to try too hard at something? Say yes, because if it's just me, because... <laughs> where you just go, I got this, I got this. So we're at a party, and sure enough, the guy's at the party. And he and I get to talking. I've never really had a long conversation with a guy, and I'm talking to him, and we're just having a great conversation. And then what? Yeah, I went, oh yeah, I'm supposed to save him. <laughs> so we went from talking about cool stuff and commonality and just stuff that guys talk, out, talk about after a long week of work on a Friday night, and I started sharing Christ with him. And in hindsight, oh, I wish I could do it over because I just wouldn't let up. And finally, I could just see him looking like, get me away from this maniac pastor. I thought he was a cool guy. And he, he basically just figured out a way to, to ditch me. And I heard him under his breath as he was walking away say, give me a break. Give me a break. Okay, that was not a successful conversation that I had with this guy. And you know what? He's never given me another opportunity to talk to him about Jesus. As a matter of fact, he's never given me another opportunity to hang out with him. <clears throat> Even as I say it. Now, having said that, you've heard me preach lately about how we all have to be speaking up more. So we have to be speaking up more, but we have to do it in a way that is honorable to this gospel, honorable to the first Christians, who pay, a lot of them paid a great price for speaking up more. We have to speak up more because our motivation is that if we don't tell people about Jesus, they won't know about Jesus, and they've got to know about Jesus. And we've got to love Jesus enough to know, and we've got to know Jesus enough to love people in a way that Jesus would love them instead of some religious weirdo trying to get them to join their club. 
I really think that God can teach us how to speak into our culture in a way that makes sense. And younger people, you gotta help the old, you gotta help us. You've got to help us. My children have helped me immensely. Even after a sermon, you know, my kids will say, hey, dad was really great, but don't say it that way. Why? Younger people, please help us. Stay engaged with us. Uh, we've got a lot to help you with, too. We need each other. We're going to talk about this in a future sermon where he talks about fathers. Here's what I want you to do. Sons, here's what I want you to do. It's First Peter 5. But here's where the younger can help the older. There was a millennial shift that's named after you. <laughs> and millennials, that means that you were born after or right around the millennial shift. And that millennial shift has created the greatest generation gap since the 1960s in America. And so as the baby booner, booners, <laughs> the baby boomers <clears throat> decline <clears throat> and the millennials come forward, you can help, we can all help each other with this transition. And one of the ways would be for the millennials to say, that is not the way to speak to the Bay Area. Because you're probably right. But you gotta understand, we got the rug pulled out from underneath us. I was raised in the Midwest, in a, in a, we didn't need Christian schools, because all our teachers were either Christians or Mormons or really cool people who, who understood the, the country was founded on Judeo-Christian values and they weren't being what I would call politically correct with it. They were just saying, you know, I don't go to church, but yeah, we do pray in the classroom. The Ten Commandments were up. The creche was out on the lawn of our school, the nativity creche. Uh, our Christmas songs were just as much about Jesus as they were about Santa. There was a really refreshing mix for us. Now, I didn't have to think, well, what's it like to be Muslim? What's it like to be Jewish? What's it like to be Buddhist? Yeah, I didn't think of that. So in, in many ways, it's better now. But in some ways, you've got to understand that people my age don't know how to communicate Jesus to people your age as well as you think we do. So we've got to work together because the Bay Area, have you been to San Francisco lately? Have you been to Temescal lately? Have you been to, is that how you say it? Have you, been to, have you seen all the young people, I call them young people, you call them 30-year-olds, that have taken over the world? That's awesome. Hey, boomers, that's what you did. But we need each other because millennials are leaving the church at record numbers because their language is not being spoken. We can't be that church. Okay? Okay? Okay. So that means we can't be a Republican church or a Democrat church or a white church or a grumpy church or a boring church, but we have to be a Jesus-based, Bible-based organization, or we're not a church. Is this easy? Absolutely not. Are we gonna do it? Absolutely. So for now, that's enough for now. Let me pray for you. Father God, I come to you in the name of Jesus Christ, your only son, and I ask you to help us to convey you to the Bay Area. Because if the churches don't do that, there's no one else working on that project anymore. And Father, we pray for the other churches uh, right here in the East Bay that we are partnered with, and we pray that we would work together and not in competition with each other, and to get this job done so that we could repair the fabric of the East Bay. We truly believe 
Jesus, that you are the answer to our pain, to the mistakes we've made, to our shame. You are the answer. You are, you are the goal to be reaching for. And we want to be there when people are ready to hear it. We'd love to present a winsome, creative, and selfless testimony to the East Bay. Please show us how to do that in Christ's name. And everybody shouted, all right, all right, cool. It was cool teaching you today. I love you.